timing the market, even when you think the market is underpriced or overpriced, should only take place based on your long-term strategies. Why you own the thing is more important than the price it is at this moment. Um, why you will sell it tends to be a decision that you need to make before you buy it. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And yes, that's aspirational. One day there may be boys and girls listening to an economics radio program. This is the Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, this is Jake McClure. And on the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. There you go. A little little pause there. Did, are, do, are you really on the line with me? I think I'm on the line with you. Um, we had some lag there. Oh. Well, uh, the... Let, let's start with our disclosures. We're an economics radio program, in case you were wondering if this was radio, uh, though you may be listening to this on a podcast or on a live stream or on a recording, or there's a lot of ways you can listen to this now. The Personal Wealth Coach is not just a radio program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm uh, that functions as a fiduciary uh, that means in the best interest of the clients. But just because it's registered with the SEC does not mean that the SEC gives any kind of approval on anything. In fact, that is counter to all government institutions. They don't approve. They just don't disapprove. They let you know when they disapprove. There you go. So They let you know loud and clear when they disapprove. As fiduciaries off the air, the duty is very clear. The fiduciary must function in the best interest of the client and give full disclosure of all fees and compensation. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a pretty high bar and totally impossible to meet that bar on the radio. There's no way we could give you all advice that was appropriate for all of you except for um, don't die. What would be good advice that would be so generalized that would be in the best interest of everyone? Even don't die might not be the best advice. So keep breathing. Keep breathing. So this radio program is not investment advice. It's educational content. And we'll go into depth on lots of pieces of information that you can use in tools to make your decisions in your financial life or even just to understand what's going on in the economy and the marketplace. All right, that was a long-winded first disclosure, and on to you for the next one. Oh, yeah, the information that we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness, completion, complete, complete, completeness, completeness of the word complete of the said information. Or unsaid information. Because accuracy well, could be about lack of information, too. We're going to do our best to be informative and to help you guys out. And we do our best to get it from information that we have found to be reliable over the years. There you go. We're not, we actually don't do those disclaimers and disclosures correctly. We don't? How, we no, need to do it really fast? Really, really fast. Nobody got to say what you're saying. Right. Faster than that. Yeah. No, thanks. Yeah, that's who we are. Yeah. And the email in here 
if you'd like to contact us. We don't, we're not taking telephone calls because I'm hogging the incoming line. Though so, in the next maybe two to three weeks, we may actually have multiple lines coming open. We're working on some software and hardware characteristics. We're waiting on a couple of hardware items, and then we should be able to do phone lines. But in the meantime, if you want to ask us a question, and back to you. You can email us at either Jeff at TPWC, that's Tango Papa Whiskey Charlie, if you're military background. Actually, if you want, you can email me at Jeff at thepersonalwealthcoach.com if you like to type lots of letters. But it's easier just to type in TPWC. Jeff at TPWC.com or Jake at TPWC.com. Jake's probably quicker if you want a quicker answer because his brain's faster than mine. Uh, I don't know. I think it's just that I am uh, slightly to the south of you, which puts me further down the girth in latitude, which means that I'm turning in the rotation of the planet slightly ahead of you. That could be the only reason why you're saying that. Just could a be. little ahead of you in in uh, orbital rotation. Well, we do have some questions, but we're going to talk about the market first. We've already got two questions out there waiting for us to answer or at least try to answer. Uh, but we're going to talk about what's happened this week in the market. So what's happened this week in the market? Well, as I often say, 44 Wall Street continued to spin around the earth once every 24 hours, which was probably the big deal. In uh, the market uh, actually rose, the stock market, the S&P 500 stock index, the index that we generally tend to follow because very frankly, it's got 500 stocks and it's generally speaking the 500 largest stocks uh, trading on the New York Stock Exchange or elsewhere. Whereas the Dow Jones Industrial Average, a more popular index, at least one talked about more, uh, only has 30 stocks in it and sometimes they go in different directions. At any rate, the S&P 500 stock index for the week rose 1.94%, which is a lot in one week. And it rose despite the fact that there's some unpleasant economic news out there. Uh, we're going to talk about the jobs report and so on. Um, but it closed at 3841.47, which is meaningless to most people, except and that's not a record. It actually broke records on Wednesday and Thursday and then fell back a little bit on Friday. Um, the index is now up 2.27% since the beginning of the year, which is a lot again. Why do I say it's a lot? Because if you take the three weeks that we've measured since the beginning of the year, it works out to exactly three weeks in this particular calendar year. Uh, and you figure that there's a, there's about uh, 14 of those in the year and you take 14 times 2.27%, that would make the stock market, if it just kept doing what it's doing all year, go up a very specific economic term we use here called whole bunch as opposed to a half bunch. Uh, which is very important to recognize that the stock market were to go up to the 30% or so that it, it is going up on, on an annualized basis, it would put it not only in unbelievably high territory, which it already is, uh, it would put it in astronomically high territory. And um, it, it, I don't think it's going to achieve orbital velocity, which means it eventually is going to fall. Basically, the stock market's overpriced, folks. Folks. Uh, it's up 9.5% since the election. Now, I'm not saying, and, and that's that's not because Joe Biden was elected. That's because somebody was elected. Yes. The market does not like uncertainty. I mean, it really does not like uncertainty. And it tends to be unhappy with uncertainty. But as soon as the elections are over, it doesn't, doesn't matter whether, just like it went up after President Trump was elected, 
It's now going up after Joe Biden was elected. If you go back and look at when presidents get elected, the stock market goes up. Because the uh, election's over and people are done with unknowing. We finally get to know something. We've started following the other side of the market, the mid-cap value, the CRSP US mid-cap value index. Why? Because in the S&P 500, there aren't any small stocks. And the market is being driven right now by large cap growth stocks. That's very, very large capitalization companies like the big ones, uh, the Fangs, the Facebook, the Alphabet, uh, and so on. And those about 10 major growth stocks, huge growth stocks, which are generally uh, tremendously overpriced, uh, are driving this S&P 500 index up. And the rest of the market was behaving differently. So we decided to follow the other end of the, uh, the market, which is value stocks to begin with. Value stocks are priced according to their intrinsic value uh, and not according to how fast somebody thinks they're going to grow in the future. And they are the more traditional stocks for long-term investors. And they're the kind of the old stodgy stocks, but they're the kind that we kind of like. And mid-cap is as small as it gets and still be in the S&P 500 stock index. So the other end of the market is the, the mid-cap value index. Uh, um, for the week, it sagged 0.31%, but it's very important, unlike last year, for the year to date, it's running up faster than the rest of the markets, up 3.49% year to date. I know that sounds very strange, but the market is a little unhealthy right now. Actually, it's maybe a lot unhealthy, depending on your opinion, in that large-cap growth stocks are dominating just, just before market collapses. Uh, I say just before, in the years and months before market collapses in the past. So we're watching to see what happens at the other end of the market. Anyway, uh, the yield on the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury, that's the, that is the benchmark for all loaning and bonds and so on, and everything else is relative to that. It uh, slipped about 3% to end the week, yielding just over 1% at 1.086%. It's important in, in retrospect that it, it put this in, in perspective. The 10-year Treasury note yield is staying above 1%, which indicates it's a lot more optimistic than it was during almost all of last year. But it's drifting up and down. And what's happening here, when there's a big influx of money into the Treasury bond, in other words, there's a lot of people, not Treasury bond or note, the 10-year note. When there's a lot of influx of money into Treasuries, the treasuries tend to rise and interest rates tend to fall. When there's a lot of money flowing out of treasuries, people are selling treasuries to buy something else, then the treasury value, the value of the treasury market tends to fall, which interest rates rise. So the fact that interest rates are up, say that a lot of people are selling treasuries relative to where they were during the rest of the year. So what we have, according to Moody's Analytics at least, is we have domestic owners of treasuries selling them because they want to buy stocks, which is why the stock market is going up, one of the reasons the stock market is going up. But we have people from the rest of the world flooding into the United States to buy U.S. Treasuries because they're scared about their local economies. And that's, we'll, we'll talk about that perhaps during the show. Uh, Europe, it looks like it's sliding into a second uh, recession. Yeah. Uh, and people are, a lot of Europeans in particular, are buying U.S. Treasuries which is, by the way, why the dollar has remained so strong. It's irritating a lot of people, particularly exporters. The dollar is quite, quite strong. And one of the reasons it's strong, in order to buy treasures, you have to buy them with U.S. dollars, which means you have to buy the dollar first, which means the dollar goes up. It's all interlinked. 
and it's enough to give you a headache if you're an economist and it give you a headache even if you're not. If you're not an economist, you just ignore it and go watch some sports. Oil is the other thing we follow as an indicator of what's going on in the broad economy. Um, West Texas Intermediate Oil sagged just a bit to $51.97 a barrel, but remained up about 7.4% for the year to date. And what does all that mean? There is a lot of evidence out there in the markets that the bond market, which is which is relatively positive, it has a positive yield curve. The stock market certainly, and even the oil market is saying, "Hey, good times aren't here again yet, but they're coming, and the the dawn is in sight, and we think things are going to get a lot better." And when we give you the bad news about some of the economic short-term economic information, remember that the markets across the board are telling us. Any bad folks, we're going to make it through this and things are going to get better. And that's the market wrap. All right. Nice. We've got some questions out there, some exciting questions. We've got three of them out there. Really? I only got one. Um, email you. Got one from John, John, one from Linda, and another one from John. So let's start with the first one. Uh, there's a article, a picture of an article that John is a great question asker. He takes pictures of the article that he's asking question about and then has a question in the email. Uh, and the article is about, um, it's something called direct indexing. Um, most people know, well, let, let me kind of, let's rewind. Okay. What is an index? Uh, I'm going to start at the most basic level, folks. We hear about the S&P 500. You talked about the CRSP index. We talk about the Dow Jones Industrial Index. We talk about all these indexes as if everybody knows what they are and everybody's heard them. But what are they? What, what, what are these, where do these numbers come from? They somehow represent markets or just parts of the market? Or how does that work? Well, index investing... Uh, comes from the index. So this is why I'm asking the question. Uh, we've got to run back all the way to the late part of the 1800s when what later became Dow Jones and Company and the Wall Street Journal had a series of newsletters out there. And in the newsletters, they were just made for people that traded stocks. And stocks that were being traded, this was a new marketplace it wasn't very regulated. There was nothing saying that you could only sell 100% of your company. I know it's a little weird. You could actually sell three or 400% of your company. Till the 1930s, we didn't get that kind of figured out. Seems like we should have, but it took us a while. Okay, so in the late 1800s, they're selling these newsletters. They want people to buy the newsletters. And they're in the back of the newsletter, just like if you get the paper version of the Wall Street Journal now, you can flip to the back of the newspaper and you will find pages upon pages upon pages of weird letter combinations followed by columns of numbers and just huge numbers of these things on there. It's, it's stock prices. What they, what they opened at the beginning of the day, what they closed at at the end of the day, and between those two things, the bid and the ask. Okay, what is that about? Well, it's like an auction. It is an auction. 
when you go to an auction and you want to bid on something, you want to know, well, what did it trade for last time? What, what was, what's the going price on this thing? What's the, is, is it running up or running down? Do, do I have a good deal on here? So these newsletters started very much like Sotheby's, the auction house of saying, this is what they sold for in the past. And this is what we expect them to be begun the offer. That's the ask. The, the, the ask price and the first bid will be this price. So this auction is going on, but it's really hard to make a headline out of that. Look at all of these stocks in the back. Um, people don't jump up and down and say, oh, I got to go run and get that newsletter so that I can read all of the gobbledygook on that back. They may want one stock price or 12 stock prices, but what about all the rest? Okay, so Dow Jones and Company decided that they would make an average of the biggest companies in the back so that they could say what the market did on any given day. And they, at first they said, we're going to average it all. And then they really had this meeting. They sat down and they said, we're going to average all these prices together. And they looked at their relatively small news facility. It's a pretty small area with one big printing press in it. And there were a couple of abacuses. There was no way that by print time, the next morning before the market opened, that they could have an average put together of all of those stocks. There was just no way they could do it. So they decided to take the biggest companies out there and just flat average their movements in a day. So if they were up 1% on average, then the market went up 1%. That makes sense. Except you have to start with a price. If you're talking about just one company, you say it started at... at $12 a share or whatever. And it went up 1%. Okay, so now it's at 12 plus 1%. If you're talking about an average of a bunch of stocks, what price do you start at? And they didn't want to average all of the prices together. They just wanted to average the movements because they're averaging the prices. That's more calculations. They don't have enough abacuses. You got to remember this is all, at this point, computers were, that was a job title for a person. So they had to hire computers to run this math. Okay, so they said, we're going to make it just a few big companies. And they started gathering them together and they started the price, the price that they added the percentages to at the completely arbitrary number 10. They just said, we're going to start the index at 10. Well, you got to start somewhere. That makes sense. So most of the Dow Jones and company indexes, including the Dow Jones Industrial Average and, and all the other big ones that you know about, started at the number 10. The original index that they, they started with is still around. It's called the Dow Jones Transportation Index, because when they were putting this index together, the biggest companies in the world and in the United States at the time were railroad companies, thus the transportation. Uh, about 25 years later, uh, they started really kind of putting together this industrial thing, this new tech of industrialization. And this is where the Dow Jones Industrial Index came out. And one of the first companies that was added to the Dow Jones Industrial Index was U- U.S. Leather. So just think for a second, how is that industrial? And the an answer to that question, very simple answer, is that it was the number one method for energy transmission on the planet. If you had a big factory, you had to turn it with you you had it running with steam engines. 
And those steam engines turned big wheels, and those big wheels turned other wheels. But those wheels were pulled with pulleys. And the thing that was connecting them was leather. So leather was a tech item at the time. They were, it's a new use for leather. It had been an energy transmission for a long time. I mean, it's the buggy whip. It's how you made the horse go forward. There's also the suspension. Right. In a wagon, before the steel uh, springs that held up, that hold up car tires and hold up cars above their axles today, was leather. There were just strips of leather bound together over and over again that it held the wagon up so that you didn't feel every bump of the road. So this is what an index was. And they were able to say, all right, this is kind of an average of what's happening on the whole of the market. And surprisingly, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is still calculated the same way, they're not using abacuses anymore, and the computers that are being used are actually hardware instead of soft parts and brains and stuff. But they're still, they're still calculating it the same way. It's not Dow Jones and company that owns it anymore. Uh, S&P 500 is a different index that's, that's calculated differently. They calculate, it's called capitally weighted, which means that the bigger the company is, the more effect it has on the index when it moves, which is anybody that's listened to us over the past four or five months so hear us saying that of the 500 companies in the S&P 500, 10 of them are, are moving the index. They're just charging forward and moving the index. That's because bigger companies have a bigger impact on the movement of, of the S&P 500 or any capitally weighted index. Okay, so what's index investing? What's in, this index is just like a, an average. It doesn't include any ownership. They're just averaging some numbers together and posting it. Uh, when you pull a, a, a company out of the Dow Jones Industrial Index, uh, and this is still, to some extent, the editors of the Wall Street Journal have some input into this still. When they pull a company out of the index, they replace it with another company. There's no commission charge for a sale of a company. You don't have to try to sell the entire company because if you do that, that will cause the price of the company to drop through the floor. So there's no real transaction cost. Well, then, Mr. Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, um, about 35 years ago, maybe a little bit more, was it? When, when did he do the index, the first index? It was maybe 35 years ago, somewhere uh, in that time period. Did more than that. It was back in the 1970s. Okay. It was a tiny little thing, and he said, "This is you don't have to pay a manager. We'll just kind of average our, our mutual fund the same way that the Dow Jones Industrial Average is managed or the S&P 500 is managed. This will work. We'll just put it together like that. And it worked really well. Toward the end of his life, he was warning about index funds because you, you lose a lot of the ability to give a reward for good management in a company if you're just averaging them in. And if you think about it from one perspective, if you only are buying indexes as your, as your investment style, then it doesn't matter how poorly the company is being managed. If it's in the index, you're buying it. And so there's some problems with it. That there, it's, it's still maybe the best approach for a beginning investor. Okay, so what is this direct indexing? Well, I feel like we've come full circle because direct indexing, which is right now a kind of a niche thing, 
is you set up a portfolio of individual stocks and you say, there's 500 stocks in the S&P 500. We're not going to do all 500 of them. Let's start with 50. And we'll get to decide which ones of those 50s actually, 50 actually go into the portfolio. Oh, we don't want gun manufacturer. Then we'll pull that out. Or we want all the gun manufacturers to put that in. So this isn't really index investing. They're calling it direct indexing, but that's just so that they can get their initial bundle of stocks to figure out who's what's going to get pulled out and what's going to be put in. And it's not exactly new, but it's not exactly a thing either. It's it's just individual stock purchases. And that's, that's the big thing because it doesn't talk about what happens if the S&P 500 adds Tesla. Does that mean in your individual stock portfolio, you have to add Tesla? Uh, that's according to whomever is putting it together. And the other part of this, this is why I say it's come full circle. Uh, Mr. Bogle, when he invented these things, it was to get the direct management out of the portfolio so you could bring the cost down. And direct indexing has a great deal of internal cost in it because you have some human, and again, the, the soft parts and brains, talking to you saying, uh, of these 50 stocks, I think we only need these 32. And when a new stock comes in, we'll decide whether or not to put it into the portfolio with you, which all of that gets paid for. So we've come full circle indexing as a way to get away from active management back to indexing as a way to actively manage. So what part of the market is, is pretty small. And I'm not sure I would call it a passing fad. I think it's something that's been around a long time. It's like some, I, 20 years ago, I think I heard it called uh, concierge index tracking. Um, so they're coming up with new words for the same thing. And, and everybody feels like it's a new thing every time they bring it up, but it's not really. And it happens during bull markets. Yeah. Uh, the bull market in the late 1990s, I particularly remember the people were buying the Dow, creating their own Dow Jones Industrial Average, for example, and they were pulling out some of the stocks they didn't like and putting in stocks they did like. Uh, there's the dogs of the Dow, which is a piece of the Dow. Basically, during a bull market, it really doesn't make a lot of difference which stocks you buy. You're probably going to make money. Here's another another one from the 1960s, the Nifty 50. Yeah, and and so there's this there's always some way of saying okay the the index was right now we're saying the index indexing is a good idea, but what if you decide that I don't want some of the things in the index I don't want the ones that are not uh, pure for whatever reason whatever your political belief is if, or if you like guns if you don't like guns if you like tobacco if you don't like tobacco so on. So when you when you buy in there and you pick and choose in an index that's called uh, direct indexing and it really isn't indexing at all. It just basically says I'm since since there is a lot of evidence, by the way, during a bull market, particularly that when a stock gets added to the S&P 500 or when it gets added to the Dow Jones Industrial Average, it goes up in value because there's a lot of index funds that has to buy it. Therefore, owning the stocks in one of the major indices puts you at somewhat of an advantage over just owning stocks in general. And during a bull market, I, I've got a saying that I, I think I may have coined this saying. Uh, I've never been able to find it. Uh, I, I think it's you. I think we can just go ahead and you have coined it. Uh, a bull market makes geniuses out of all of us, but a bear shows us for the fools we really are. It's true. This, we get something that we now call direct indexing or something very similar to it because very popular 
during bull markets because people think they're geniuses, they can outsmart the index. In fact, all they're doing is noticing that their boat goes higher as the tide comes in, think they're levitating. Yeah. But well, the they tide- are levitating. They're, they are levitating off the ground. They just don't understand that it's the same levitation they were doing before because they were being lifted by something. And those are generally the first people out the door when the market collapses. Yeah. People that are jumping into the market now, and this, I'm, I am this week, I'm not sure I'm at an all-time record, but I've had a lot of clients say, I think it's time for us to get more aggressive. And here is the scary part. These are the same clients that were saying, maybe we should get more conservative at the bottom of the market in March. So, you know, there's no prescience here, except that we're all a bunch of humans and we all look at this the same sort of way. We're all looking at the market and saying, it's up, so let's buy it. Except that that's the definition of buying high. So just, just that's a heads up. Do you think we've answered that question fairly well? Yeah, but it, it actually, if you wanted to, if somebody really wanted to get really serious about this, they would look at the transportation index and they'd actually dig into Dow theory. And Right. But the point is, again, there's lots of these, there's just lots and lots of things that will come up that indicate we're in a raging bull market. And this is one of them. That's it in a nutshell. And I don't think a lot of people are doing it because it takes a lot of brain power to do. Um and people think, like I said, people think they're geniuses. And generally speaking, they will be, they, and I say not, they're not the first ones out, the people who do this, because they'll hang on for a while in a, in a bear market. And then you see what's called capitulation at the end of the bear market, where the true believers finally bail out. Um, and these are, these are in many cases, the true believers who are hanging on to things because they don't like tobacco or they don't like guns or they don't like pollution or they think the sexual discrimination is bad or Whatever reason they're holding on to specific stocks. Hopefully, everybody thinks sexual discrimination is bad. But you know, well, when I say sexual discrimination, oh. they board members and they say there's not enough women on the board ah. of this company. Therefore, they're discriminating sexually. Therefore, I'm not going to own this company. Yeah, and there's a lot of people that do that, and and it may it, be an effective way of investing. We'll we'll have to wait and see. The question is, do, are they willing to hang on when they buy in a bull market like we've got going right now, a, which is frankly looks more and more like a bubble? Um, are they willing to hang on when the bottom falls out and the people bolt in another direction? And that's the big question. And right. it's going to, we don't know that it's going to happen in the short term, but we can say that when the market is this high, get ready for what's called a correction. And it could The correction could turn into a bear market, but still, it's a correction because the market got overpriced. There's too much money allocated to stocks. Yeah. And there's a really good reason for it because there's not much else place to put it other than real estate right now. And real estate's going up too. Yep. So let, let me good. let me hit this next question, but I really want to spend some time on real estate. Um, the next question's from Linda. And Linda, I'm not calling you out on this to, to embarrass you. I sent an email out today that it included the same typo that you sent me on interest. I put a W in interest and I was reading it out loud this week to someone else and I just had to go ahead and say intwist. And you did exactly the same typo. So either either we uh, are sharing brain space or something. I just wanted to throw that out there. Okay, so here's the question. The other day in Fox Business, a lady said Social Security, Medicare, and interest on the national debt consumes 90% of government revenue, and if you throw in unemployment 
unemployment, it consumes 130%. Did I mishear? Uh, you probably heard correctly or very close to correctly. Let me go through some of these numbers. Um, the The revenue for, for 2019, we don't have the final numbers in for 2020 yet. And 2020 numbers are not going to follow what their ex- expectations were. It's going to be something different. But in 2019... Uh, the U.S. government took in $3.46 trillion with the T, not a B or an M. Trillion dollars, $3.46 trillion. How did that get spent? Well, um, and your question, you mentioned uh, a couple of things in there. Social Security, Medicare, and interest on the national debt. Well, two of those are big. One of them's not so big. Uh, Social Security and Medicare are a big chunk of our spending uh, in 2018, because just because we can't show apples to apples ever in economics, we don't have the data on the budget as a final for 2019 yet. We only have 2018. So I can look at revenue from 2018, which was about 3.46 trillion. Okay. Income security includes. Uh, all kinds of um, retirement plans for the federal government, uh, including military, uh, including basically everything except Social Security, any pension other than Social Security. Between income security and Social Security, we spend about $2.4 trillion. Now, you remember I just said that the revenue is $3.46. We spend $2.4 on pensions. Medicare is another 776. So now we're almost at the totality. We're around 95% of tax revenue. This is before we add in health insurance for U.S. government employees and Medicare. I'm sorry, Medicaid, um, which is another 7.45. So now just with those four items, we're above what, what we took in for revenue. That's before we talk about Commerce and housing, national defense, interest on the debt. Interest on the debt is about $344 billion. It's actually a little bit lower for 2019 and maybe a little smidgen higher in 2020, even with the extra debt because interest rates are so low. The danger is that when interest rates are not so low, that could be a problem. So we spend a lot more than we make, a lot more than we make. And we were actually talking about this before the program because that whole theory of modern monetary theory is out there. And I've been reading the book on it from the most prominent economists that or at least uh, legitimate economists that is for it. And I, I need to get all the way through the book before I rip it apart and, and say there's problems with it or, hey, it works. But so far, I'm seeing a lot of problems with it. Um, there's, there's two extremes to this. One says we must balance the budget and never run any debt. That's one extreme. The other extreme is you never have to balance the budget. You never have to worry about the debt. The United States government manufactures its own currency. So why should we have to care? We just manufacture more money. They're both wrong. Those extreme positions are both completely wrong. If we had to balance the budget or we were going to implode, we've only had one year in the last 50 that we had a balanced budget. 
the United States would have already imploded. So it can't be that. We can't have total balanced budget or the end of times. But we've seen enough countries, Venezuela, Brazil, Greece, Mexico, you just keep going down the list, that have devalued their currencies because they just manufacture more of it. There's another country that's done that in the past, just as a side note, called the United States. And we've talked about that in the past. We can have some other conversations about what happened in 1837 and the... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Constitutional Congress's money that was uh, issued and not worth a continental dollar. Anybody heard that? Uh, uh, it's not worth a continental. That's what it was. Right. So when I was a kid, it was a very popular thing, not worth a continental. And sound as the dollar was another thing. So was- this this yeah. concept is that currencies can get devalued by their governments. And that's not a good thing. I remember as a kid, um, we had family members that were in Mexico and they came back and said that they were millionaires. And this cousin that's slightly older than me, he says, I'm a millionaire. And I'm like, how did you do that? In pesos, because they just devalued it. And now I have millions. And I said, well, what does that mean? Do you, can you buy more? And he says, no. Oh, Okay. So devaluation of currency is the end result. And I have to finish the book before I say the total end result of modern monetary theory or what, uh, what have you. Um, as long as people across the planet believe that the dollar is the place to be, and you were just talking about how the dollar is strong and that's annoying to people that are trying to export from the United States. It makes our products more expensive. But as long as it is the place that people are sending money, both for loaning to the government and so on, we can have some kind of crazy spending. We just have to be careful. I think we've answered that one fairly well. But if you if you would like to send us an email with more questions, we've got another one waiting, a couple more waiting. Um, the email addresses in here are jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. And we're back with more of the personal wealth coach with Jake and Jeff. And together we're both McClure's and bald. Yes, uh, we are. Think. <laughs> we think we're bald. Well, uh, I we, can see you're bald. You can and see can, I'm bald? And I can also see that I'm bald because I can see a picture of myself. Yes. So did you get the two other questions? No. Uh, we got two more from John. Um, they were sent to you as well, so... You're, you're just, you, you must be on uh, behind in the rotational speed of the planet or something. Um, John's question was additional stock issues. He sent another article in here. Companies sell shares at record pace. Uh, his question is, how and why do existing companies issue additional stock? That is a fantastic question. And one that we kind of take for granted in our in the background of, of our work. Uh, when there's an initial public offering, this is the first time that a company goes to, um, to sell stocks, sell, sell its own shares to the public on the stock market. They issue a lot of shares, a lot of stocks. Some of those that they that they get, that they have issued in, in effect they, they their shares existing 
they don't release to the public. Those are called treasury stocks. Those treasury stocks are held by the company and they can release those shares, those stocks out to the market without diluting the ownership of the existing uh, shareholders if they do it right. There's another way they can do it that makes the people that existing that already own it, if they didn't have enough treasury stock, they have to make new, which would make anybody that already owns the stock own a little bit less as a percentage of the company. That's not as, as exciting for most shareholders. But if you've got treasury stock and the company needs some cash and they feel like they can use it for research and development or something, they can release those shares out into the market and the market will buy them up. And conversely, and this is something that took place over the last several years, since 2018, one of the big things that happened after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, when the corporate tax rates were dropped, there was a lot of extra cash in the coffers of corporations. And they bought their own company stock, which raises the stock price. And they brought that stock back into their treasury. So in the future, you know, they, they did it. They had extra cash on hand. They felt like the stock price was low. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of this took place in November of 2018 um, and into the beginning of 2019, where companies were buying back their own stock. That goes into the treasury their treasury, the company treasury, not the U.S. treasury. And then later on, if they need cash for some reason, they can release that stock back out into the marketplace. So that's how that works. Uh, and it, and it's, a, it's a kind of effective way of making sure at the company level, hey, if the stock price is going down too far and you've got extra cash on hand and it doesn't make sense or it would allow another company to come and buy a big chunk of your company and maybe take over, a hostile takeover, you can buy your own stock and put it in the treasury to prevent a hostile takeover. And that's generally what happens in these hostile takeovers. One company comes in and says, we're going to buy a bunch of your company. And then the, the company they're buying says, well, I'm going to buy more of my company than you have. So we're going to raise it up and we'll, you, you see how that's going. Well, also there's so called secondary offerings where right. there's, an, there's an initial public offering. And sometimes the company says, Hey, our stock price is going up. We need more money. And really, the boil that boils down to the fact: if a company is being very successful and they want to reinvest more money into buying new equipment, buying new plants, expanding, and they want more money from the public, they can always first they have to go to their shareholders and say, "We would like to sell a bunch of stocks, which is going to dilute your stocks, or that, we're going to give you extra shares." That's the big thing. Secondary offerings very often dilute the company stock for people that already own it. They they own less as a percent than they did before. The, the big thing is the company says, hey, we need more money to expand and grow. And sometimes they can get away with that without any trouble at all. Right. Okay. And I think we've got one more good question here from John for this hour. Um, he says, more and more articles and radio hosts say the market is overpriced and the bubble is going to pop. Is it time to sell and take some profits? Mm. Uh, no. Should I talk about Isaac Newton? I think this is a good idea. He did sell and then he bought again. Yeah. Timing the market, even when you think the market is underpriced or overpriced, should only take place based on your long-term strategies. Why you own the thing is more important than the price it is at this moment. Um, why you will sell it tends to be a decision that you need to make before you buy it. 
So if we look at something and we say, this is a decent price and we'll sell it at some point in the future or we'll rebalance if it gets too much of a percentage of the portfolio, those all make sense. Saying, I'm going to sell it because I think it's overpriced is also, it's a good idea if you're really concentrated into it. And, and there's, I, I deal with a lot of clients that over the years have been given a lot of company stock for the company they work for. And for them, like if it's Apple or Tesla or uh, Unity, or there's a lot of big tech companies in this area that they have a lot of employees here. Uh, and they look at the amount of money that they have invested in these stocks and what they started with was very, very tiny. But now it's a major percentage of their overall portfolio. Determining a good price to sell makes sense. If it's overpriced, you, you, you're already trying to divest yourself of it. Divest means not have so much concentration and not be invested as much in it. Um, you start selling and you say it's a good time to sell when when it's when you look at the price and you say, I would say this is overpriced. But if you're owning a big chunk of the market in a diversified way and you say, hey, the market's up, let's sell, there's a danger there. And the danger is in behavior. Uh, Alan Greenspan, when he talked about irrational exuberance, he was, he was quoting Dr. Schiller. And Dr. Schiller had written a book called that. The book was written about seven years before the crash, and the quote from the book by Alan Greenspan was about four years before the crash. So you can be in an irrational, overpriced mode for a long time. It's a good time to be slowly reaping the profits off the top and investing in parts of the market that are down, that are also well diversified and high quality. What's not a good idea is just to sell to sell. You're not, you, we don't go to cash in these situations because that tends to say, hey, we got out. I made a lot of money. And this is where Isaac Newton comes in. Do you want to tell the Isaac Newton story? Oh, you can. Okay. Isaac Newton, who if he were alive today, would have received the Nobel Prize in physics, chemistry, and economics. Because, Sir. what's that? Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton. And medicine. Um, so kind of across the spectrum, full on Nobel guy, he was invested in the stock market of, uh, England way back in the 1600s and looked at the stock price of this, the South Seas company. What? 1720. 1720. Well, it started in the, in the late 1600s. He was buying and the, the bubble popped in the 1720s. But he started buying the South Seas Company fairly early. Um, he looked at the price. South Seas Company was, was taking a, a whole trade route across uh, to India and, and China and coming back around to Europe. And the profits were good. And that caused a lot of people to buy the company. And this company became more and more valuable. And I, Sir Isaac Newton said, hey, this is too valuable. This is, the, the profits are no longer enough to justify the price of this stock. I'm going to sell out of it and I'm going to do some real estate investing and I'm going to start some rental feeds. And so he did. And he made a great profit in getting out of the South Seas company when he did. And then right around 1720, 
He couldn't take it anymore because the South Seas Company had just been skyrocketing the whole time he'd been out of it. He took a big profit out of it, but it's really hard to say, hey, I did great when it's now three times as high as it was when you sold. Maybe I should have stayed. Maybe I should have stayed. doesn't matter how smart you are. That goes in your mind. So he jumped back in and he invested the lion's share of his personal assets. And he had a lot of personal assets at that point into the South Seas Company. And how long was it before the crash? It was some ironically short period of time, like a week. Yeah, about, about a week to two weeks before it crashed. From and, the time he back into it. And he lost his fortune. Gone. So and he forbade, forbade anyone to mention the two words South and Sea together in his presence for the rest of his life. Right. So the danger of taking profits and getting out when you believe that the market is overpriced, especially if you're going to cash with it, is that you'll second guess yourself later after the, the madness of crowds continues and the prices continue up and then you want to jump back in. Well, that's probably Murphy saying, hey, go, go on. You can do this, Murphy. I'm on your side. Really, really, wink, wink. You the, pro the problem with trying to time the market is it's nearly impossible. Yeah. And I say it's nearly impossible, no matter how easy it looks in hindsight, because uh, Dalbar did some studies about different types of investors, and the ones that made the most money and lost the most money over a long period of time. And the single group of people that had the worst performance, actually had a negative performance over a long period of time, was market timers. And these are people who really, really, really worked at trying to figure out when the market was high and when the market was low, and to bail out of the whole stock market when it's high and try to get in when it's low. They were able to figure out when it was high, but they could never figure out when it was low. And that, that was a series of really awesome questions. We didn't talk about much of the things that we had prepared because these questions were better. <laughs> if you would like to talk to us off the air to talk about your own finances or to get some uh, direction on where you're going, we do give fiduciary investment advice to people of high net worth through the personal wealth coach. You can contact us directly locally with voicemail waiting during the weekends or real live people during the week at 254-947-1111 or toll free for those of you that still have landlines 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. We've got uh, recordings of the radio program going back lots of years. We've got newsletters to sign up for or read. And you can contact us or email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com.